So Trent, what have you been eating recently? I am glad you asked. I just had some carrot sticks and uh, nope, that was it. Just carrot sticks. Um, and you? I had some milk. Ooh, just like a straight glass of it. That's like a controversial statement to make these days. The, I love I love milk. What percent? Two percent. That's fine. The internet's mad at you though. That's why. You haven't heard the memes part. Uh, is apparently, milk not okay now. Drinking a glass of milk is to some people is considered repulsive. Parth, Parth, you're talking to a sympathizer, so you're preaching to the choir. Um, I grew up. I on didn't milk. realize this could get me canceled. I, I was, I, I was had a milk a day. Parth, let's think about it this way: our bones are so much stronger than everyone else. We're fueled with calcium. Um, One could say that we do, in fact, got milk. Well put, but actually, that is also controversial. Yeah, because yeah, because it's a government campaign because the dairy farmers of America were. Uh, just up to their neck and surplus milk and then they thought what's a catchy slogan and then uh, they came up with that and it worked because now me and you we've been fooled we were manipulated by the u.s government to uh just fill ourselves with milk why are cows like a reoccurring subject in our in our opening discussions yeah um we talked about almond milk last week and how oh, yeah. it spared um, like the cow udders, you know. And then this week I decided not to. Although I wasn't the one that had almond milk. It was, it was me. It was you. Um, but I sided with carrots because I just wanted my vision to improve because apparently that's a thing. Have, have you seen – were you a Phineas and Ferb guy, Parth? I love Phineas and Ferb. So I was eating. Did you, know that, did you know that my friends used to call me Baljeet in high school? Oh well, that's oh, like a period of uh, yeah of a year. Um, oh wait, I wait. Could it be because he's the one Indian character on that show? I don't know what it was about him, or is it like the uncanny physical resemblance? I do. I I you know I kind of do look like him in one way. Um, do you have or, a Do you have a Buford in your life? Like a man with a skull and crossbones on his shirt who just constantly harasses you, but you're in a parasitic relationship and you keep coming back. Uh, is that what this is, bro? Is that me and you? Wait, wait, which Phineas and Ferb character am I? If anything, I'm like Ferb. Wait, what's Candace's like boyfriend? What's his name? Do you remember? Jeremy. Jeremy. And his little sister's name is Susie. Um... Mm-hmm. Well, Candace doesn't do anything for me romantically, so I guess I'm not Jeremy. Um, but I guess we can do a grand reveal in the next episode of which Phineas and Ferb character I am, or we can do like a, wh- however, like double digit uh, listeners we have, we can have them vote on it. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the the reason I brought up Phineas and Ferb is because there's an episode where they chop a bunch of carrots and then they put them into like a pair of glasses and it gives them supervision. I remember this. Oh, you you recall that? Mm-hmm. I love Phineas and Ferb. I, like when you I was did, kid. yeah. No longer, not since I was called Al G. Oh yeah, I'm sure once uh, racism was brought into play, you uh... racism does tend to kind of ruin things. The mood, the tone. We'll put the general atmosphere. I would say that on the on, on in in the general, I'm pretty against racism. Bold stance. I am going to second that statement. 
because if I didn't, I think this would become a solo podcast due to the public backlash. Right. So um, I just want to get onto the show now. Yeah. Now that we've condemned all forms of racism, Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on. Let's not get canceled. Welcome back to Craft Services, the podcast, where we talk about the movies and or films. Each week we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that movie to talk with us about their experience. This week we're going to be talking about John Wick, the movie, and with us we have its costume designer, Luca Mosca. Parth, um, you saw this movie. Can you briefly describe it? to our listeners with a little a, synopsis yeah if if it's from wikipedia that's fine uh it's actually from imdb an ex-hitman comes out of retirement to track down the gangsters that killed his dog and took everything from him yeah you're you're a man of few words so is he hmm. um i guess i'll just go into the production history if that's okay with you. you might as well so this is a project born out of the mind of writer Derek Kolstad. He's the screenwriter for all three John Wick films, although the third one has other writers attached to it. Um, originally, it was a treatment and development for a retired contract killer that comes back to the job, and it was originally titled Scorn. And a little fun fact for you, John Wick stars Keanu Reeves as the titular character, and when he was attached to the role... He was so excited about it, he just called the movie John Wick a lot, and that's why they decided to change the name originally. Oh. It was titled Scorn. That's a fun fact, Parth. Thank you. It is fun. Um, I'm fun. You're fun. Thank you. It was influenced by the neo-noir, neo-noir genre and Stephen King, um, and it was Keanu Reeves who got David Leach and Chad Stahelski, who were stunt performers on the Matrix trilogy, as well as second unit directors later on in um the film industry uh they did a lot of work for the wachowskis who did the matrix trilogy um and he was the one that got them on board to direct uh this is their first this is their directorial debut um chad stahelski was the only credited director because of directors guild of america rules um leach was given a producer's credit um filming was mostly took place in uh new york some stuff was taking place in Long Island. Some stuff was in Queens. Some stuff was in Manhattan. So all around a New York film. So New York is also known as the Big Apple. Is that correct? Like yes. the Is it the concrete jungle? Is it like the city that never sleeps? Yeah. Wait, is it the city so nice they named it twice? Okay. I'm out, I'm out of examples, so I'm glad you stopped me. It was released in 2014. Um, it had a budget of 20 to $30 million, and it was what was considered a sleeper hit it made 86 million dollars a financial success mm-hmm. you heard it here first folks it's they true ended up with more money than they started with and they had some fun in the process um but that's all the production history that i was able to find online but maybe we should get some behind the scenes on the costume design for this movie who could we possibly talk to to hear more about that i've i don't know do you and i'm glad you asked this it's in case you didn't remember, we actually interviewed the costume designer 
for John Wick. Wait, it's not whack. Wait, wasn't the costume designer Luca Mosca? Or am it I was. am I imagining a, things? We had a great conversation with him, didn't we? It's all coming back. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we actually are gonna cut to that interview now that I remember we had one. So now on to our interview with costume designer Luca Mosca. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with the amazing Luca Mosca, the costume designer for such films as Premium Rush, The Last Witch Hunter, Skyscraper, and of course, the John Wick trilogy. We're super excited to be talking with him and to learn from his expertise. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm honored uh, and humbled by the beautiful introduction. Thank you. Of course. Um, so we generally start off by just asking our guests how they got involved with the film industry, like where that um, sort of passion started. The way uh, my career in film started was completely accidental and unplanned. Uh, coming from the world of fashion, from Italian couture uh, specifically, and having recently moved to the United States from Italy, um, a producer um, approached us, um, my former uh, business partner and I approached us uh, asking to um, volunteer a few pieces of uh, clothing from our um, fashion line for his upcoming small budget movie. It was a $250,000 uh, budget movie. And uh, we accepted and then uh, we were offered to maybe design the entire movie. And I said, yes, why not? Let's do it. <clears throat> and uh, the same producer, um, called us to do the following movie, which was a beautiful Hamlet, Hamlet 2000, with um, Ethan Hawke, uh, exactly, playing Hamlet, and Bill Murray being the spin doctor. And so that was a great opportunity to do a small budget, an independent movie that... Um, uh, would eventually get a lot of acclaim and visibility and uh, sort of jumpstart my career as a costume designer. So from what was a completely uh, casual and unplanned moment of donating a couple of dresses uh, to a small independent production, um, here you go, finding myself and working with Sam Shepard uh, as the ghost and Diane Venora and Julia Stiles and an incredible cast. Um, and uh, my, my career has been in the name of incredible um, and generous opportunities. People who trusted me to always do something bigger uh, than my credential would suggest that I would be able to do. And, um, and that's been the case for all the following movies. And here I am now, and um, I have a decent career designing great, great projects. 
with um, with the best talent uh, in the world. So we did a little research and saw that you studied f- pharmacy in college, and we just wanted to know how you got into fashion after that being your education. I am indeed a pharmacist. Uh, That was not my vocation. Uh, That was imposed upon me by a very traditional family that (laughs) uh, couldn't understand how with the pharmacy um, in uh, in the family, one could dream of being involved with fashion and with the instability of freelance work. And uh, so I had to oblige. And uh, my medical studies were very hard. I cannot uh, deny that. Um, I'm also very proud that I achieved uh, such a a difficult um, goal. Uh, But at the end of my uh, medical studies, uh, I had to tell my family, I'm done, I'm done, and um, I'm not going to work in the family business. And I had this great opportunity to work in a, in a couture company in Italy, at the time producing the likes of Helmut Lang, Catherine Hamnett, Romeo Gigli, Norma Kamali, and I ended up following um, the Callaghan line, but also Norma Kamali based in New York. And dream come true, I was crossing the pond every couple of weeks, and I became very familiar with New York and uh, eventually uh, setting up shop there um, became uh, very natural, very organic, and uh, we started a clothing line, and that's how the whole career unfolded. And it moved from chemistry and physics to fashion, to costumes, and uh, and it's still evolving. Don't, don't it's not over, but uh, for now we are still doing movies. Yes, we still are. I am at least. My 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 parents are both science majors and have like two masters in science. So uh, going into the arts is something I can empathize with. Um, so uh, we just kind of were wondering if you could explain what um, your parameters or, or job description of a costume designer would be, or how you would describe that job. The costume designer is the person who is responsible for the look of every single actor, every single person that shows up in front of the camera. And that applies to your lead actor, to your supporting actors, to your minor roles, and to all the background actors that you have in a movie. And it starts, my work starts in pre-production with a script. 
that I read and dissect and analyze in all the most minute details. I try to pick up all the possible information that I get from the script. And then I start a creative uh, conversation with the director in order to bring her or his vision in front of the camera. And at that point, uh, we start a massive visual research with, according, depending on the movie, with period or contemporary or ethnic uh, uh, photograph, photographs, and then with illustrations, and then building samples, uh, collecting fabrics and, uh, and uh, any kind of materials, uh, accessories. And then eventually moving on to the uh, to the human body and getting the first actors uh, into the um, fitting rooms and trying clothes on them, taking beautiful photographs, and um, and making sure that everything looks right, uh, fits okay, and and last but not least that your budget is also handled with care. When you do a movie, you don't necessarily have a billion dollars um, of disposable budget, so you have to keep an eye on your spending and prioritize and make sure that all your most important actors and scenes are taken care of, and you have to see where you need to uh, sometimes compromise. And that is, in a nutshell, the work that we do over the span of many months in order to bring all these actors in front of the camera. Obviously, once the costumes are ready, uh, the task of the costume designer is to be on set uh, with the actor and with the costume the first time that he or she wears the costume, make sure that it works, and then eventually follow the progress of the costume in a movie like, and I'll make the example of John Wick because it is very easy to understand. In the, in the case where there is a lot of wear and tear of the costume. And so even if you have the impression of seeing the same suit that gets burnt and torn and slashed and pierced by bullets, those in reality are many different costumes that are all prepared in different stages of distress and, um, and that all need to be coordinated and supervised. So, and we have been talking about my work up to now. Obviously, there is an army of people, um, army, an army of um, super competent, qualified, laborious, hardworking um, people who sew, who uh, die, who stain, who distress, who stay on set for long uh, shooting hours and make sure that everything is properly 
maintained, executed, and shot in continuity. So it really takes a village in order to put this together. And at the end of the movie, or at the beginning of the movie, you see the big title page that says costumes by, and you see the name of the costume designer. Uh, The reality is that there is a lot more than that one person. To to all the crews uh, that I worked with, uh, my my utmost uh, and heartfelt uh, gratitude. That's that's great. Um, so um, so when when working on something like John Wick, um, what what kind of communication do you have to keep with your Obviously, you have your main actors and uh, you have your director and your cinematographers, which are all responsible for what's apparent in the frame. And so what input do those three um, levels of people have on your work and what kind of collaboration happens there um, in John Wick specifically and just in general? Um, The director is my uh, ultimate boss. So that's a person I need to respond to. And uh, because of my um, personal relationship uh, with uh, Chad Stahelski and uh, and also with Dave Leach in the case of John Wick 1, because Chad and Dave were co-directing John Wick 1, the communication is constant. So every time I have it fitting, I immediately um, rush or Dropbox or share some way uh, or another the photos, the fitting photos uh, with the director. I personally uh, enjoy the company of the director during the most important fittings uh, because at that point, He can be vocal together with the leading actors and uh, we can all make a decision quickly in the same room. And uh, you were asking me also um, about the DP, the director of photography and um, the production designer. Um, I love working with both of them. I want to know... Uh, what the likes and dislikes for a DP are, the basics, what is your relationship with very dark colors, or how do you like white? Does white, can white be white, or you would rather have my whites be uh, off-white and quote-unquote tea-dyed? And and, uh, we also test uh, fabrics, uh, to see the reaction um, on camera. Sometimes uh, you upgrade to a new technology and this is happening all the time with technology moving so fast and you want to see what this new Alexa is doing and uh, how it's reading your navies or your dark grays or is that um, fabric going to moire to move uh, in a funny way in front of the lens. So uh, this is a very important uh, process that happens with the director of photography. 
And with the production designer also, I love to work um, very closely because uh, it's important for both to know how our colors are going to interact. Is he going to give me a red wall and I'm going to give him a red costume? Is this going to be a problem? Or maybe not, because maybe that's exactly uh, what we want to do. We want the actor to blend into uh, the red background, or maybe not. And so my costume uh, can become green if we really wanted to stand up, stand out um, in front of the red background. So um, I, I like to visit sets during the making, during the planning. I like to see photos and sketches and, uh, and share my costume concepts um for for that very reason i think that it's very symbiotic the relationship that happens uh, among all the departments uh, of a movie and uh, we all use one another as tools in our tool bag to achieve the perfect um result and to bring the uh, directors uh, vision in front of the camera. So we were wondering if you design costumes based on the actor or the character in the script, or is it a combination of the two? It is always a combination of the two. Um, you have to have an idea of what the body type is. And once I get the measurement from the actor, I immediately get some information about what kind of fit uh, I can afford or I should uh, design for that specific body type. So this is a conversation to be had also with the actor. Um, actors will uh, oftentimes inform me of what works and what doesn't work on them. They know their body. They have been with their body uh, for much longer than myself. And, um, and also the character is informing the costume. Um, of course, um, is it the blue color? Um, type of character is that a sleek superhero um, so all of those factors have to do with eventually what becomes the costume colors also are very important uh, I can convey a lot through color I can give or take away power from a character uh, by using specific colors. I, I can make a character uh, lovable, scary, um, repulsive, all of that, but just using color and texture and fabrics. So yeah, it all depends uh, both both the actor 
and the character uh, as it is described in the script inform my decision of building a specific costume. One, one of the things that I was wondering was on something like John Wick specifically, like you were saying, you kind of have several different versions of the suit uh, as, the, as it progresses throughout the film. And I was wondering on John Wick specifically, how many versions of that are there? And obviously you need to be considering both form and function. And so how do you design considering the practical, practical needs that the action in these movies require? The multiples, um, as we call them uh, in my industry, of each costume are definitely one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of the making of an action movie like John Wick. Um, I, I don't remember the exact account of suits um, that we had for, um, for the character of John Wick. Uh, but I think uh, that for his main costume in uh, John Wick 3, we had about 90. And so a few of those costumes are allocated to Keanu Reeves, to the actor himself. A few of them are in the proper size. A few of them may contain uh, gussets or added little pieces of fabric to allow for the extreme movement needed for when you need to lift an arm or kick a leg up in midair. And, um, but that's only a small part of the costumes. Uh, maybe some costumes are in a slightly larger size to allow for pads, to allow for harnesses. Um, but then there is an enormous amount of costumes uh, that um, are allocated to the stunts uh, that play John Wick. And uh, some stunts uh, may be exactly the same size as Keanu, uh, but some of them may be shorter or taller, maybe, uh, maybe even larger than he is because uh, Keanu is extremely fit. And uh, for example, in John Wick 3, you saw these horseback riding scenes and uh, the guy... Right. Um, that was trained to ride the horse in the extreme scenes um, is a guy that is a completely different size from Keanu. Uh, and uh, so you need to keep that in mind. Also, you have to put a very big pad underneath the shirt and the jacket and then uh, cut a hole through the jacket in order to attach a harness. So sizes range wildly. And then you have to keep into consideration that at the beginning of the scene, at the top of the scene, the costume is pristine and clean and pressed, uh, but then it gets wet because uh, John Wick is uh, walking in the rain and then he gets bloody. And maybe it's even bloody from the previous movie, from John Wick 2. And so you have to... Um, 
pick it up from where where you had left it. So the stain, um, the blood stain on um, on John Wick's white shirt uh, is almost like pre-printed on a on a dozen shirts, um, and uh, eventually we add more blood to it uh, based on how many minutes or how many hours um, there are between the beginning and the end of the scene. And, uh, and the color of the blood also may change um, based on, uh, on time. Uh, fresh blood is more intense and more red and uh, older blood tends to be more brown. And um, so the, the multiples, uh, this enormous amount of multiples needed to make an action movie um, are one of the things that fascinate the most people who come and visit the uh, wardrobe rooms or the wardrobe truck. Um, uh, it, is, uh, it is kind of incredible to see the same costume repeated obsessively for racks and racks. And uh, it is also um, where much of the budget is spent. And uh, it is spent in a non-visible way, meaning uh, the audience doesn't necessarily understand that in order to see that one costume, you have to prepare 90 of them. Uh, but um, it is definitely a beautiful sight, even for myself, to see all those shoes, all those suits, all those shirts, all hanging from the racks. Um, it's a it's a very fascinating sight. So I was wondering, as you've worked on consecutive films in a franchise, um, when doing John Wick Two, are you do you tackle that as its own entity, or are you thinking about it as an extension of the preceding one, especially through like the tone changes that John Wick Two and Three have compared to the first? It is probably both. Um, it is beautiful to consider each movie as its own entity, uh, but you are dealing here with something that has been built before. Now, the elating uh, feeling of going into a John Wick 2 rather than a John Wick 3 is that your hard work uh, has paid off. and. The movie uh, that started off as a somewhat independent um, feature that not too many people believed in has been a worldwide blockbuster. And, and now you are called back as a part of that successful design team to make number two. So obviously, you created a formula. Uh, that needs to be continued, and uh, and you can just add on, and uh, and for me it is more like going to town with it, and uh, doing more uh, because I think that for John Wick the more the better, and uh, and just um, employing all your creativity and um, and designing 
the the most beautiful, the most creative costumes. And uh, so to go back to your original question, yeah, both. Take it as its own, but um, it's a franchise. It's a known entity. And what you have done before was right. So continue it and do it better. That's awesome. Um, so kind of talking about it as a franchise, um, the first film was a pretty low budget um, for an action movie. It was a budget of like $20 million or so. Um, and each consecutive um, sequel has sort of doubled that the budget of its predecessor. So um, we were wondering how an increased budget like that affects your workflow. How uh, more than affects it, um, let's say how it allows uh, for more freedom, for more creativity. Um, mm -hmm. So in, uh, in John Wick 2, you could see that we, we left the continent, we went to Rome, we shot in Rome, we took the historic uh, bath of Caracalla, and we put thousands of extras, and I dressed all of them, um, and uh, it takes a huge budget in order to do that. So that uh, the, the bigger budget allowed me to do things that in, uh, in a movie like John Wick 1 were impossible. Now, what I'm very proud of um, is that in John Wick 1, um, we used creativity to replace money. Whenever there was not enough money, we figured out a way how to do things in a cost-effective way and to put in front of the camera a movie that was um, richer and... Uh, more expensive than the movie that we were actually making. So I am very, very proud of that. And I think that my philosophy was really appreciated by the directors who were very vocal about that and they really liked about um, liked that about uh, me and my team. The capacity of saying, okay, this is what I have, let's do it. And um, so, yes, this is what the bigger budget has allowed me to do. Like you were just talking about with having to dress uh, like a thousand extras for that scene in John Wick 2. Um, are you as meticulous um, in dressing the background uh, characters as you are with like the key players? So, of course, when you fit. Halle Berry or Angelica Houston, you pay more attention than when you're feeding a waiter for the Continental Hotel in Morocco. Uh, but the same obsessive attention goes into the designing of the costumes, into finding the right fabrics, the right trims. All the work is done ahead of time because when when the day of the shoot comes and you're hit by thousands of background actors, there is not too much time uh, to be meticulous about fit. 
even if most of the actors, background actors, are pre-fit. So um, Keanu Reeves gets all of my attention, and so do all the most important numbered actors. Uh, but I also like to make sure that the costumes for the Continental Hotel, for the party scenes, for the Continental waiters, for the stuff, are designed to be on the same level. So there are there are literally months of research, of building, of shopping uh, for all the background. That's super cool. Um, we kind of stalked your IMDb profile and um, mm. were able to see that you, you've worked on a lot of films that have been produced um, by Lionsgate. Um, and we were wondering, is, is that a coincidence or, or are, is like our costume designers kept on by like a certain studio? Because I know with like composers, sometimes it, it, it can kind of be like that. So you're we wondering about that. Yes. Um, I think I am not the executive producer at Lionsgate or another good example would be Sony Columbia. Um, I have done a lot of work for them as well. I am not the producer. I am not the person who hires. But when I see that my costume designer, Luca Mosca, is dealing with all my cast, all the crew, the budget, the director, in a seamless, non-drama producing way. His costumes are always delivered uh, in front of the camera on a timely manner. Uh, everybody is happy. Uh, the movie has commercial acclaim. And um, that's, um, that's the reason why, as a producer, I would want to go back to that same guy because I think that my qualities are very precious um, when it comes to a large production where you have no time to waste, no time to make mistakes and uh, experiments right. or replacements. So I pride myself uh, with being uh, the reliable person who rolls up into the same person many, uh, many persons, many professional persons. The, the person who knows how to deal with the actors and make the actors happy. The person who knows how to deal with the um, director the person who is kind and respectful to the producers and who can manage the budget and all of that. And uh, that's my attitude. And um, hopefully there will be many more callbacks. So changing gears a little bit, uh, Keanu Reeves is like famously like one of the nicest 
actors in Hollywood. And also you've recently worked with some other big name actors like Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Skyscraper. So while working hands on with them, do you ever get like a little starstruck or do you keep it strictly professional? Uh, That's my personal nature. And I don't think I would say starstruck, uh, but insecurity is, in total honesty, the driving force behind all of my work. I work 10 times harder because I always think that I am not enough. What can I do? What can I do to satisfy the needs of of a of a Keanu Reeves, of a uh, Vin Diesel? They have seen it all. They have um, Lawrence Fishburne. They have done The Matrix. They have done the best movies in the world. What can little old me provide? that is going to be good enough for them. And so I work so hard, so hard. I do a lot of prep work. I do, a, I, I, I do so much. And one thing that I would like to mention also that I am so proud of are my photographs. Uh, as you know, um, we need to take photos of the costumes in order to show them to the studio, or rather than the director, etc. My I I have studied photography, and at this point, I call myself a professional photographer. I have very sophisticated lights and equipment, and I photograph um, fashion magazine quality uh, pictures. They're not just the usual standard Polaroid uh, type. Please stand in front of, of the wall. Uh, because I need to show your costume to the director. So that goes with my sense of never being enough and and uh, trying to always overachieve in order to be good enough. And, uh, and again, that sense, that feeling of paying off is probably, yeah, working. Well, I'll, I'll speak for them in saying that you've done an amazing job with all of their costumes. Um, but um, thank you, thank you. Something exciting that happened on the the first sequel to the first film was you were cast in the role of Keanu Reeves Taylor. How um, fitting! How <laughs> unintended! Um, how 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 did how did that end up coming about, and what was that like? So um, just about, I would say, two weeks prior to the shooting of the movie, um, the director uh, kind of made a joke about the tailor and, and, um, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but I, I said, can I please have um, have his phone number at least? I, I, I need to speak with him. Now, that was a week before. I said, the tailor could be a man or a woman. It could be a thin man. It could be a 500-pound man. 
it could be a small uh, woman, it could be a large woman. Uh, uh, give me, give me an idea because if it is a guy and it is an Italian tailor, I want to put him in the three-piece suit. Uh, well, I'm talking with him, and now I remember. Yes, the director said yes. I'm talking with him right now. And I said, okay, so give me his phone number. And I thought that he was saying that he was referring to the fact that he was in negotiations with him. And he says, I am talking <laughs> with the tailor right now. And he looked into my eyes. And uh, and I, honestly, I wanted to faint. And my first reaction was like, I wanted to die. I wanted to say no. And uh, so he gave me the script and um, we had to do a little adjustment to the script. And uh, Keanu and I looked at it together. We rehearsed it together. I think that the studio didn't want to hire me and um, because <laughs> I didn't have the credentials. Uh, but the director said, I wrote uh, this role based on you and you are going to do it. And so... People in the subway in New York probably thought I was crazy because I was reading my lines out loud and uh, trying to memorize all this technical jargon. And uh, and the day of the shoot uh, happened, and um, and uh, even if I felt my heart beating uh, in the back of my throat, and I thought I was going to die of a major coronary. Uh, it went very well. It was day one of shoot of John Wick 2. And uh, the whole crew knew me from John Wick 1. So I had everybody on the set to see me. So um, it, was, um, it was a lot of excitement. And the director then said, um, I want you to stop designing. I want you to act. I am very pleased with your performance. And... That was something that had been said to me by James Dobak uh, in a movie shot so many years prior uh, when he put me in the movie and he said, stop designing, I want you to be an actor. And I said to myself, wow, I, I heard that twice already, so let me do something about it. And so ever since John Wick, I... I started going to acting school. I got into Stella Adler School of Acting. And ever since, I am training and acting uh, on a weekly basis. I am in a theater group, and I have been in, uh, in a bunch of other independent projects. I have been in theater performances and stuff. And so that's what we said at the beginning of the career, right, when we went from, um, from uh, chemistry to fashion, to costumes, and now possibly acting, and uh, who knows? I, I think I will pick up ballet when I am in my 90s. Who knows? And uh, But this is what um, is on the plate for me now, and yes. So I was wondering if you were able to disclose if you are playing uh, if you're going to be the costume designer for john wick 4 as well no that i cannot disclose um uh as you know also there's a lot of uncertainty about the timing uh of 
John Wick 4 because it all depends on uh, the Matrix and it all depends on whether the Matrix, uh, because Keanu is playing in the Matrix, right? Obviously, um, it all depends on when uh, Babelsberg and Berlin and all of that reopen and he can go back to work. And so now um, I cannot talk about John Wick 4 yet. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, well, sort of speaking on that, uh, we were wondering how the coronavirus has been treating you and your ability. I mean, obviously it's impeded on everybody's ability to work, but like, how have you been doing with that? The coronavirus, uh, crisis, um, needed a little bit of adjustment, uh, from uh, my side. Uh, first of all, I was very blessed that nobody in my circle of loved ones and friends was affected, neither here nor in Italy. Uh, My family, including my 90-year-old dad, uh, lives in the very epicenter of this uh, tragedy in Italy, and uh, nobody was affected. So that was a blessing in in it by itself. Um, The little adjustment that I needed at the beginning, um, which was very difficult when I was afraid uh, that I would die and that I wouldn't be able to um, help my uh, 10-year-old son um, become a young adult and an independent adult. the, the, that adjustment consisted in my unplugging. At some point, I realized that um, watching the news and reading the newspapers was uh, toxic. And for me, I completely 100% unplugged. And, um, and I started um, painting and um, sewing and sketching. And so now I can say that the past three months have been the most incredible, creative, beautiful uh, time of my life. Um, Incredibly, I have been cast uh, to be um, in a in a web series also as an actor uh, doing some self-taping. And uh, so it has been an an incredible time. And um, so to answer your question, uh, it has been uh, amazingly beautiful. Well, I I think that's a, a great place to leave us off. Trent, you got any questions? No, that's all for now. Thanks. Thank you again for coming. We really appreciate your time. My big pleasure. It's been um, it's been great to share some of my experience in uh, costume design and in movies with you guys. And I hope uh, that some of your listeners will find these inspiring. For sure, um, it was it was wonderful talking with you. Um, That was Luca Mosca, costume designer for the John Wick trilogy. Um, And we hope to see his work later. 
So that was Luca Mosca. Uh, we're super happy he was able to talk with us and make sure to check out his future work. So, Parth, uh, you know, me and you, we both, we like this movie. I mean, for the most part. Uh, we'll get to that later. But in the meantime, I was looking at the internet, you know, Google, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, some, thing. some people felt differently. Out of uh, five stars, they decided to give it one. Wait, what did they say, Trent? Tell me. Yeah. Uh, so these are pulled from Amazon.com. Uh, these are some negative reviews that I thought were rather silly. This one's titled Violent. The review says, one star, very violent. Second review, subject, this is really bad. Content, first of all, you see what happens at the end of the movie. Thanks for that. They went to the extreme with each character and how they really, really, really wanted you to hate a character or feel sorry for a character. God. They even killed a cute puppy to work up your emotions. Enough of that. I get it. They are bad guys and you are the good one. Sheesh. Moving on. Uh, subject, what a vile mess. This person feels strongly. This movie is just horrible. I feel bad for the character at first, but after finding out he was a gangster, I feel less bad. And what he did has no justification. It's repetitive and gruesome, but I hated the dog dying. The entire movie is not believable and shallow, not to mention he totally overreacted, even for someone in that state. They also didn't have to drag a church into this. Isn't that so funny? When the church was Mm -hmm. the front for the Russian mob. Um, this person values religion here at craft services. We, um, believe in the word of Jesus Christ, our Lord and savior. Well put moving on. Uh, this one titled seriously, um, content. This dude must kill 60 people in the movie. And it is 10 people for every line of dialogue. Keanu Reeves has for a car and a dog, the dog, maybe. Absolutely ridiculous movie. Same audience watching this is why they made nine of the Fast and Furious movies. If you graduated the eighth grade, you should not be interested in this movie. That's all I've got for reviews. Uh, Another thing I'll synthesize from reading a lot of one-star reviews is a lot of people were just like, I watched the first 15 minutes and then the dog got killed and I was disgusted and I turned it off. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous. And also there were a lot of people who were just like, I like John Wick until I found out that he used to be a murderer and then Mm. he couldn't be my protagonist anymore. And I guess these people have never heard of an anti-hero little complicated storytelling. Mm -hmm. All Um, right. Well, um, that's enough negativity for one podcast. Let's get optimistic. So Trent, what were your initial feelings on this movie for, for context? I've seen this movie. I saw this movie when it came out. I've seen this many, many, many times. And this was Trent's first viewing. Yeah, I uh, was a John Wick virgin, so to speak. And boy, am I, I'm no longer that. He's, he's deflowered me. Um, Well, I watched it last night. And I have, I have some feelings, but overall rather positive. Um, it was a it was objectively a great action movie. Um, I mean the 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 I, it was a th- it was a joyous romp is the best way I can put it. Um, mm-hmm. 
I thought it was a condensed. Wait, it was like ninety minutes. It it's like, it's like a hundred minutes. Yeah, sure. It it moved fast. It kept me entertained. Um, I think this movie, if Keanu Reeves wasn't in it, could have been a B a B movie. But mm. Keanu Reeves really escalates it. it. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll get into the the nitty gritty later on. How about how about you? Uh, yeah, I pretty much feel the same. Um, I think, well, I mean, I saw the trailers for this and I'm a big fan of Keanu Reeves from when I was a kid and I've watched The Matrix and I've loved him ever since. Everybody seems to really like him in the industry, seems to be a very nice person. Yeah, in the past five years, there's been like a, a Keanu Reeves renaissance. Just he, he's the Internet's like dad now, if you haven't heard. And he's very he's very committed to his roles. Um you know, in the Matrix, you can see him doing uh, most of the action work, mm-hmm. uh, doing stuff like that. Same thing here, and, and it's the same thing here. Uh, I agree. Without Keanu Reeves, and kind of Keanu Reeves gets a lot of shit for being like a not great actor. I think he's really great here, and I think he has an inherent likability. Nobody like hates Keanu Reeves. You may not like him, but you may you don't you don't hate him. You know, and I think that really helps with this when i first saw this i saw this in theaters with my dad and two other friends of mine um and it was awesome i was blown away Mm -hmm. and i've i've since it was the first blu-ray i ever bought with my own money Um, historic moment it's true and it's it's a very special movie for me it was um transformative for me because it was a movie that sort of I've always been a fan of action movies, and then this was a movie where it's like, oh, I want to like understand how they made this. And um, yeah, I mean, I I love this movie. I'm kind of amazed they made this for twenty million dollars. It looks yeah, very economical. Yeah, know? they 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 really stretched it. Yeah, um, I guess we can talk about the the direction. Sure. Uh, the one thing that popped out to me was the editing style was very unique, um, mm-hmm. and like I liked the on screen text. Um, I thought that was an interesting touch. Um, I thought the transitions were cool. They did a lot of like wipe screens in, into the next scene. There was a lot of cross cutting, which I enjoyed. Um, it it kept it fresh. I n- never did a scene go on for too long. It didn't give you a chance to get bored, which was something I valued. Yeah, I think the the with action movies specifically. Um... Something that I've always thought is, I mean, I, I I didn't think this. There's a channel called Red Red Letter Media that said way, this. Way to cite your sources. But um, they're absolutely right with this, which is that a movie doesn't necessarily need to be smart, but it should be smartly made. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is an example. This is not a very complicated movie, but there's lots of filming techniques, like cross cutting. The the cinematography is really great. Um, yeah. Some. Some places say that this was shot in 35 millimeter film. Some places say this was shot digitally. Um, I think it's on film, but really, I I know very little about this, but if I were to guess, I would say it was digital. I just, I've seen it. I've seen that it was shot on film in more sources than I have that it was on digital. Um, on Wikipedia, it says both. Um, but, (laughs) but like maybe it was like the room where they did both (laughs) perhaps, but, um, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a tier above most other action movies visually. It's got this really great neon 
aesthetic. Yes, there's a very distinct color scheme. And also there's a lot of like interesting like aerial shots. Yeah. Um uh, there's cool like tracking shots, the action sequences are very well done. There's and and like you said with the editing, um this had a really big impact on action movies, like low budget action movies, I think, because in 2014 we were still getting the like super close up, super shaky, super um you can't really tell what's going on that type of action movie that came out of the Born like, trilogy. I was just going to say like the Born Identity is like famous for that sort of like sh- yeah. sh- shaky cam at like fight sequence to the point where you don't know you're completely spatially disoriented and you're like I know that they're punching each other but I don't know like why or how. I or think any- the, the the Born movies do it well or they, they mostly do it well. Sometimes it goes a little overboard in like mm-hmm. supremacy but but the Born movies do it well because they're made by filmmakers that like understand why they're doing it and it's a stylistic thing. Whereas when it was adopted by other filmmakers, um, it was used to hide the fact that they had no fucking clue what the, they were the flaws. Yes. Yeah. And here you get these really awesome wide shots of, of Keanu Reeves doing his fucking thing, you know, like, yeah, the, the choreography is very elaborate and, and well done. And just like the shots carry on for so long that it isn't, it, it isn't cutting it every chance it gets it. It gives you some time exactly. to uh, appreciate all the, uh, all that combat. This movie was one of the, I think this was the movie that invented gun foo. Oh, and, and explain to me and our listeners what that is. It's, it's kind of just like this style of fighting in which guns are used in really interesting, kind of like you do like trick shots in basketball. It's sort of like interesting comparison, but it's, it's like you try to see like what interesting ways you can do use your gun, you know? Yeah, I, I see the the parallel between like, I don't know, say like. This is like Kill Bill, but with guns, or like any other like samurai movie. Yeah. Or, or if it wasn't with guns, they'd just be like kicking and punching each other. It's all pretty much close combat stuff going on, you know. And I think it it it, it really shows that this was made by two stunt performers and stunt coordinators. Yeah, because that's where their priorities lay, and they have a lot of experience in that department. And it, it's it's I think it's really awesome that this became a success because if this hadn't become a success, I don't know what the state of action movies like lower budgeted action movies would be, because um, this kind of raised the bar. It kind of said a and, low budget and blazed a trail. Yeah, it, it's a it's a trailblazer, um, and I think. It's it's like you said, the fact that it was made for twenty million dollars is really crazy to me because of just how well produced it is, you know. And uh, uh Willem Dafoe is in it. Yeah. And it has these great Ian McShane is in it, Willem Dafoe is in it, Keanu Reeves is in it. Yeah, the, it has, the the bench of this movie is very deep. Yeah, and it's it's a very Isn't Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters in it, rather briefly? Is he? Yeah, I think so. He he's he's the the guy from the hotel who No. That's who, just another black guy. You racist. We're going to have to cut this. No, uh, we can't cut this. Trent. No, stop. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> but he looks a lot like him. 
Dude, he's bald. What are you talking about? Okay, well, um, luckily I edit this, so we'll we'll see about that. But um, I guess disregard that comment. I was gonna <laughs> after we condemned racism not five minutes earlier. Now we need to keep this in. This was a slip up. I'm not perfect. Oh. Let it be known. Let the record reflect. Oh, it's it's a guy named um, Lance Reddick. I think is his name, and he he's on a show called The Wire on HBO. Uh, really making me look bad. Yeah, by knowing all about him. But every, every but it, it it has a really stacked cast, you know, and it, it kind of shows like twenty million dollars isn't a hindrance. I mean, it, I'm sure they went they did go through a lot, and that isn't necessarily the most amount of money, but I mean. Lots of action movies that are made for a hundred million dollars look a lot worse than this and have a lot worse action than this, you know? Parth, you know a lot about this movie, and this is my first time. So I wrote some questions as I was going. And can mm-hmm. I ask them to you and maybe you can provide the answer? Yes, please. So when John Wick, the titular character, he gets the dog out of the cage and he looks at its collar and it's named Daisy, and he's like, Oh, of course. What why? Why is that of course? I don't know his his wife. I don't know. Oh well, okay. I, I, well, I was confused by that. Okay, second it's question. Not that big of a deal. All right, I guess it's just a throw. I think it's maybe, line. of course, like oh, he gave like the dog or she gave the dog to him and whatever. Next question: Who? What happens to the second car that John Wick has that Aurelio gives him? Because throughout this movie, people are just giving him cars left and right. Um, that's actually mildly. Like a very mild plot point in the second movie. What? That the second car is recovered? Uh, yeah. Also, I'm surprised the first car, which is what like kind of set this into motion, isn't mentioned again. Mm-hmm. Is it ever recovered? Well, well, again, it's, that's in the second movie. Oh, okay. But very mildly, to be fair. But it is, it is there. But this movie doesn't set up a sequel or a uh, a threequel. No, I it, think it, it, it just, really cool about it. Yeah, it just happened to be so successful that it could it, it could it, it could justify those. And it has this really interesting underworld happening. Yeah, it, it sets up a, an entire uh, it, it sets up a whole world of like everyday thugs that I didn't know existed, but basically it just like is it just like the Russian mob or is it supposed to be like more complex than that? It's it's sort of like this the, the way this works, so far as I understand it, is there is this group of hitmen. Mm-hmm. And um, you kind of learn more about it in the second and third movie, so I don't want to like... Because we'll get to those eventually. Get to those, but basically, for the purposes of this movie, there is a lot of hitmen and women that uh, do their thing, and the Continental is this safe haven yes. hotel where when they're there... It's the Flatiron Building, I think. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. The Daily Bugle in the Spider-Man films. Yes um but so so that's like a safe safe haven for them and they use gold coins as this sort of currency kind of i was gonna ask about that it's don't think too much of the the directors have spoken on it it's not really so much like that there is a specific value amount attached to it Mm -hmm. but more so oh so you're in on this like if you have to think about how much it costs you probably shouldn't be having coins 
Yeah, I was... I briefly thought about this, and I was like, John Wick, for his two nights at the Continental, handed him two coins. But then also, to get into, like, the dance party thing, he paid one coin, and also... I, I like I was just confused on the value of one individual coin for the guy to clean up his house. Yeah, and also, are they like made of gold? It's not really important. It's more so just meant to be like, oh, the secret society has their own form of currency. I'm happy that the Russian mobsters actually speak in Russian, and then they just put subtitles because. I really don't like movies where it'll be like, ah, it's German terrorists, but they're all fluent in English. I, I, um, I guess we should then just get into story. Um, let's just let's just dive in. But there's not much here. But what do you think? <laughs> um, I, I, ha- I just have a few more like perimeter comments that I'll I'll make. Um, I thought. Well, first of all, how did the thugs know where John Wick lived from the gas station? Uh, maybe they followed him. I don't know. All right. Uh, second thing, I thought that the story, you may disagree with this, had too many like temporary characters. And I'll name the example like Perkins, Winston, and Aurelio. I don't know if they're in the follow-up movies. But I mean, they, Perkins dies. Perkins gets shot. Yes, I know. Um, but I just, they're just like in it to serve, like, and the guy who I thought was Ernie Hudson, him too. It's just like they're in like one scene, they have like one conversation, they provide a key piece of information or, or not, and then they either die or they're forgotten. Um, I kind of disagree. I mean, I don't know that it's a disagreement. I guess it's just a thing of taste, but... For me, it's like I kind of like that there are these sort of periphery characters, um, and it's like it kind of helps seal the deal that oh, this is a fully formed world that that he's re-entering, and there would be all of these side characters. You know what I mean? So I kind of like the fact that there's these established relationships that um, we kind of don't like know, like uh kind of a weird example to be making but it kind of reminds me of star wars where you don't need the explanation for all of the things it's just sort of this world exists and it's lived in and it has its rules and we're just in it yeah and i i kind of like all these side characters because it's like well they mean something to john wick we don't necessarily need to know what they mean but they're there what do you think of the script broadly or the, the screenplay, if we're being technical. I think it's efficient. I think it's exactly what it needs to be. Only only problem... There's not really that much to talk about with story, I think. I think the only thing is the dog dying and the ending. Um, I think the dialogue is like a step above most action movies of this class. Like, I think it's more fun. It has this sort of fun, like pulpy comic booky like thing yeah there on. there are a few times i thought it was really witty and then a few other times or i guess the rest of the time it was kind of just on cruise control and i thought it did what it had to but it wasn't it wasn't wowing me but when you sign up for a 90 minute action movie am i asking for aaron sorkin dialogue no that'd be an unfair expectation yeah i i think it's it, it's um, I guess sort of going back to the aesthetic of the movie, it's really like a graphic novel, which is something they have, like the directors have 
outwardly stated that that's something that they wanted to do. Yeah, you, you, you can feel that influence. You can see it in the framing. You can see it in the editing, kind of, and in the shot choices. Um, and I, I think, I think it's a really cool thing that for the first half hour, there is no action. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is all character building, which is something. Not the first half hour. He gets well. He, he gets beaten up, and like the. Well, that's I not guess... really an action sequence, though. Yeah, true. It's it's pretty one sided. It's all like. His wife is dead. He's mourning his wife. His he gets this dog, and there's this little fun like, oh, he likes the dog. The dog is cute and whatever. And then the dog dies, and then it's like he goes and asks who this who the person was that killed him that that killed the dog. And it's this fun, it, well, not fun, but it's 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 this half hour pretty much of no action happening, um, which makes when which makes it all the more when satisfying. they kick it into high gear. I think that first action sequence is still one of my favorite action sequences in the franchise. And this franchise gets crazy. Is that when like the, the, the 12 guys? Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Um, a character dynamic that I thought was really interesting was between like Vigo and his son and how Vigo kind of like, like ban- like he, he like expected his son to die. Well, he, he like, he sided with john saying that like you shouldn't have done this and being like this is gonna get you killed when in most movies like the father would just be like hey we're gonna get him Mm. you you hurt my son and then also how he tries to like settle it diplomatically because he knows that he's in the wrong and now in the end he gives up his son so Mm -hmm. he'll be so, so he can survive just to like cross him again so and then he ends up being being killed even though he must have known that this was going to happen because he told his son that he can basically like guarantee he he was guaranteed death um i think it's more so that at that point you know john had sort of destroyed all of that stuff at the church yeah so he was worth much less his son he kills his he he ruins all of his political whatever leverage and blah 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 and money also this guy has like i don't know like 70 hitmen and or or 70 goons and they're all dead now so he would have to do a lot of recruiting to get back on his feet i think the head count for this movie is 88 people jeez I don't think it was like gratuitous though like no either i I I was like on board for all this violence it's 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 other than like the language like there's a few f-bombs thrown in there but other than the language and the digital blood i was just gonna say i don't adore the cgi blood it's a problem and it it doesn't necessarily get better (laughs) also people like don't really bleed like what do you mean oh okay do you know when they're in like the bathhouse Mm -hmm. john wick shoots a bunch of people and they're like in pools and usually you fall into the pool and then you start leaking blood because that tends to happen there okay uh i might have to rewatch it but i'm pretty sure there's blood in there but but i mean sort of speaking on i'm willing to forgive speaking on on the clubhouse i mean i think that the the home invasion the clubhouse are some of the best action sequences ever i think they're awesome um they're really well choreographed you can see exactly what's happening you know there's lots of fun 
things that he does with his gun and yes um i think the clubhouse specifically there's a lot of variety in like what he does it isn't it doesn't fall into the trap of keeping john wick do like having him do the same thing over and over again that i think other less accomplished directors would um he keeps it fresh he keeps finding new and unique ways to kill his enemies yeah which as a viewer i appreciate exactly i think for the story my one issue is ends too quickly and it's got the it's not got the best like show off at the end i don't how do you feel about the beginning like being the end you know what i mean yeah i mean i don't have an issue with it it's kind of just like an editing technique to be like "Ooh, what happened here and i think how did we get to this point i think that wasn't a thing in the script i think that was a thing where when they edited the movie they were like this opens on john doing nothing yeah i just think they were like people are gonna get bored in the first 10 minutes and they're gonna leave the theater because they're gonna be like we signed up for an action movie and nothing's happening yeah i have no i really don't have an issue with it it's an editing editing conceit Whatever. You want to one one thing I think is a little cheesy. Hear it. Him watching the video of him and his wife. Oh. Also, just like the the exchange there is really stiff. It just mm. like, hey John, what are you doing? And he's like looking at you. And then she's like, come here. And then he records them kissing. And then he, like, watches that a lot. And it's like, I don't know. If my wife died, I might just, like, think about her, you know? Mm-hmm. Nah, I, I know, it's a storytelling device. It's telling the audience that they were in love and that it's, her death was tragic. I can forgive it because the point of the movie isn't the drama of... Yes. You know, it's it's it does what it needs to do, kind of clunkily, but... But I, I thought, by contrast, within the first five minutes, you totally understand, like, the wife died, and he's sad yeah. about it, and he's alone now. And I thought that doing the recording thing was overkill. That's fair. That's fair. Another, I don't know, technicality, I guess. Go ahead. Why does Willem Dafoe, uh, what's his name, Marcus, he accepts the contract to kill john wick when he has no intention to is that correct um yeah i think it's it's just so because he knows that other people are going to be doing the hit on him so um but he put himself in a position to have vigo murder him miss he when vigo came and offered him the job he should be like hey and vigo knew that they were friends he should be like no i am not interested in that and then he could have protected him with no strings attached and now he knows that people are going to be after john but that's what ends up getting him killed that's a fair criticism again doesn't really matter no 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 parth i'm not too worried about it i I just have very few negative things to say so i'm uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel yeah but i mean i don't know that there's that much more to really talk about with story it's a very simple movie i think there's more to talk about with the second and third movie I think uh, I was content with the ending, uh, being that he, he has a new dog. He gets a new dog, and it's he he settled his his beef, and now he's he's back where he started. But he should have 
closure, I guess. Um, yeah. He's currently carless, but uh, I'm sure that won't last for long. Um, yeah. Just a fun fact before we move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the three movies, John Wick has killed 306 people, which exceeds uh, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers combined, which I thought uh, Isn't that crazy. you people at home should be aware of that he's a, he's a dangerous guy to keep your distance or he'll uh he'll kill you baba yaga yep the uh the boogeyman well he's actually the guy you sent to kill, to kill the boogeyman yeah no i watched that's the always movie. a weird thing they always call him baba yaga and they're like well he's not really that anyways it'd be like if i called you like the tiger and they're like oh you call parth the tiger i'd be like no but if there was a tiger i would call parth in order to execute that tiger and they'd be like well that's a complicated nickname you should just call him the tiger killer um tiger king um well, well yeah well put topical all right um what what next i guess i guess we should just give I mean, it a rating yeah do you have anything more to say or can we just get into ratings um let's get into ratings um go first I'm going to give this a seven and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it. I for for an action movie, I thought it was great. Mm. Um, but action movies aren't necessarily my cup of tea in the first place, so it was a little bit out of my comfort zone. But overall, I mean, what's not to like? But just uh, there was something missing that. Uh, that maybe they'll find in the next two installments. Oh, well, um, our next installment is John Wick Chapter 2. So. How, how sequential of us. Mm-hmm. And you? Uh, uh, again, I love this movie. Um, I'm, so prepare for some bias. I, I also am a very big fan of action movies. Um, I'm, I'm going to give this an 8. Um, that was conservative of you. A few years ago, I might have given this a 9. But like, but that's that's the past part. But now, because of because of the sequels, which we can get into later, do the I sequels think, make this one better for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, or does this, each one like up the ante? Uh, yes. They both. They, so John Wick two and three are more connected to each other than two is to one. Maybe one is, is the it, most standalone it, movie. Is it in a, in the way that like Back to the Future two and three are connected? Because you make the first one and you're like, well, who knows if this is going to succeed and 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 require a second one. But then after, and then when you're making the second one, you're like, well, obviously this is going to do well, so we're going to interconnect it with the third one. Um, this wasn't sh- two and three weren't shot back to back. Well, I know I know that specific to Back to the Future. That wasn't like the plan with it, but but it, they're more connected and the sequels kind of go deeper um i think the sequels become way more ambitious and that's why i think i'd give this like an 8.5 um it it does what it needs to do really well it sets up this really cool world has some fun characters really really good action um and kind of changed in my eyes changed a lot of indie action movies not an easy feat well I say we uh, we did John Wick. We did. So what's our next episode, and who are we interviewing? Our next episode is, surprise, surprise, John Wick 2.
the logical following of John Wick 1. Um, it's going to be John Wick Chapter 2, and we have an interesting guest for you next week. Um, it's Richie Cohan, and he is the trailer music composer. There you uh, go. Which is, you know, interesting facet that we haven't explored yet. So we'd like to thank Luca Mosca, the costume designer who graciously uh, talked to uh, uh, our lowly selves. Uh, very insightful information. We appreciate your time. And I think that's all for now. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this week's installment of Craft Services, the podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.